Would you turn with me please to Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is one of the most beautiful and instructive prayers that you will find in all of Scripture. And in just a moment we're going to stand together and we're going to, uh, we're going to read it. Daniel 9 is written in some of the darkest days of Israel's history. I'd like to remind you first about some of the most glorious times of Israel's history. As a matter of fact, it was undoubtedly the most glorious time in all of Israel's history when Solomon was uh, dedicating the temple. After all, David had conquered all of their enemies. He had expanded the boundaries and the borders of uh, the kingdom of Israel. Their land itself was bountiful and economically they were prospering. It was so wonderful that almost all of the kingdoms of the world would come to Israel to see the splendor and glory of Israel. And on top of all of that, they had finally built a beautiful temple and dedicated that temple for the name of the Lord to worship and serve the Lord their God. They had experienced the glory of the Lord coming in at the dedication of that temple and pushing everyone out. Rarely had the people of Israel so vividly experienced the presence, the blessing, the glory and the power of God. It was certainly a mountaintop experience and yet on this mountaintop, Solomon, the wisest of all men who ever lived because he had requested wisdom from the Lord, Solomon had the wisdom on the mountaintop to anticipate the valleys ahead. And in anticipating the valleys ahead, in 2 Chronicles 6, we find this prayer. Certainly, he, pray, he prays and he dedicates the temple, but as he prays, he says, Lord, if anyone sins against his neighbor, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head, or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven. Forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and to their fathers. Later on in that same prayer, he says, When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. How's that for wisdom? When they sin against you, not if, but when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and you deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive, they repent and make supplication and you, uh, to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done wrong, and have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all of their heart and with all of their soul in the land of their captivity, where they had been carried captive, and they pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which uh, I have built for your name, then hear from heaven, maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Solomon had prayed and said, Lord, in the future days when Israel is not so glorious, they're not walking with you. When they turn and repent after you have judged them, would you hear them? Would you forgive them? It was to this prayer that the Lord gave a response that has become famous and almost all of us could quote it. It's in Second Chronicles 7.14 where the Lord in answering this prayer says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I, will I, will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That promise that God had given is a promise to which Daniel is clinging to as he comes to the Lord in prayer. 
And I want to talk just before we stand together and read this prayer of Daniel 9. I want to talk about the first condition for God's blessing. God says, if my people, it's a condition. He's talking to his people. The problem is not the heathen. The problem is God's people. And he said, if it's my people who will humble themselves, the first condition is humility. Humility, folks, is not thinking lower of ourselves than we ought to think. Humility involves two things. Having an accurate view of God and having an accurate view of God that also gives us an accurate view of ourselves. That is humility. Recognizing God as being God, recognizing ourselves as not being God. Humility is required for any of these other steps. He says, if my people will humble themselves, meaning if they will become broken of themselves and if they will depend upon me, if they'll have a right view of me and depend upon me alone, if they'll have a right view of themselves and be broken of themselves, if they humble themselves, then pray. See, no one prays until you get broken of yourself. When we think that we have all the solution, when we have the answers, when we have health and wealth, prosperity, when everything seems to be going our way, we have no need to pray, do we? Just look at our own lives. There are so many things that we are able to accomplish in and of ourselves We don't even take time to pray because we're so busy with everything else that we're accomplishing. It's when we humble ourselves and recognize that without Him we can do nothing. It's when we humble ourselves and recognize that we have nothing to offer the people that are around us. It is only that when we humble and get broken of ourselves and recognize our need that we become dependent upon Him and say, Lord, give me bread. I have a friend who's been coming from a long journey. I have nothing to offer him. Give me the bread. And we keep knocking on the door until he gives us something so that we can offer to our friend. Folks, this is the humility that is broken of self in prayer and is dependent upon God in prayer. Then there's the humility that not only leads us to pray, but it leads us to devotion. The people who will seek my face. You know, you don't seek something until you realize that you have lost it. You don't look for something until you realize it's gone. I remember spying on one of my children who had wandered off at the beach. He was fascinated with the birds, the seagulls, and so he would chase after them. And unfortunately, he would chase after them so far that uh, then he would be lost. Well, one day I realized that Jason, okay, I'll go ahead and give it away. Jason had wandered off. And as I began looking for him, I just looked out for birds and said, oh, there's a flock of birds. I bet he's over there. So I walked over, I watched him. And as soon as he realized that he had wandered away from mom and dad, he started looking around and I could see instead of the glee of chasing birds, now panic comes across his face as he starts realizing, hey, I'm lost. I'm gone. Now I need to seek mom and dad. When he turned around and and saw that I was watching him, he found great comfort and, uh, well, kind of comfort, kind of more turmoil as he realized he was in big trouble. But that's the idea that he realized he was gone and then he begins to seek his face. Folks, we don't seek God We don't seek His face. We don't seek communion and fellowship with Him until, first of all, we get broken of ourselves and realize that we're not in fellowship with God. And then we become dependent upon Him saying, Lord, I need You every hour. As the deer thirsts for water, Lord, I thirst for You. I desire You more than anything else, more than gold or silver. Only You satisfy, is what the song says. That is the humility of devotion where we recognize that we need Him. That's the humility that the prodigal son finally had to achieve. When he came to the end of himself and he realized that he was selfish and his dad was generous. And he decided to get up and go back to his dad. That's why we humble ourselves and pray and we seek his face and then we turn from our wicked ways. No one turns from their wicked ways until they become humble. 
getting an accurate view of God and His holiness, an accurate view of us and our own sinfulness. We turn from our wicked ways when we recognize that I have chosen a path that leads to destruction. And where I'm going is leading me to trouble and I need to turn away from this direction. You know, some of us become so proud when we're driving even a wrong direction that we'll try to figure out how do I turn around without anyone noticing that I'm turning around. We don't want our family to notice that we've gone the wrong way and so we try to figure out in our mind how do I turn... Listen, just turn around. Just get off the side of the road, do a Yui and go back the right way. That's the humility that says, okay, I need to turn from the wicked way that I am in. When Solomon anticipated the future sin of the people, he also anticipated God's judgment. He said, God, they're going to sin because we're sinners. Who hasn't sinned? And yet their sin and their rebellion is going to take them to a place of destruction where they will be held captive in a strange foreign land. And when that happens, God, when they're broken of themselves and when they confess and when they turn, will you forgive them? Will you restore them? And based upon... Solomon's wisdom and prayer, based upon God's response and answer, were able to come to Daniel, who indeed was living in those times when they had been carried away captive. He lived through times of rebellion. He lived through times where there had been judgment. And now we discover the prayer of humility that seeks God and seeks God's restoration with God and God's blessing. Would you stand with me, please, as we read Daniel chapter 9. We're not going to read all of the chapter this morning, but Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. A chapter that is easily divided into three parts. We find Daniel's study and his insight in verses 1 and 2. We find Daniel's prayer or his intercession in verses 3 through 19. And then in verses 20 through the end of the chapter, we discover Daniel's prophecy or instruction. And though I've tried to take a chapter a week, we are not going to be able to deal with the prophecy and the instruction until next time. Tonight, today, let's learn from Daniel's insight, verses 1 and 2, and from Daniel's intercession. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was the king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. I said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him, with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, and we have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But to us, shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and departed so as not to obey your voice. 
Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have rebelled against Him. He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing us into a great disaster. For unto the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer unto the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept this disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which He does, though we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of of Egypt with a mighty hand, made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all of your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hearing the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God. For your city and your people are called by your name. Lord, this morning, as we come to you in prayer, we recognize that we need you. We recognize that we need to turn from our wicked ways. We need to get an accurate view of yourself and an accurate view of our own selves so that we might be able to pray with such a fervency and such a truth and such a passion. Lord, unless you meet with us to teach us this morning, a beautiful passage of Scripture like this cannot be, it cannot be handled justly. It cannot be understood and appreciated and valued the way that we ought to. Our desire, Lord, is that you would open up our hearts. Our desire is that you would speak through your servant and that you would accomplish your purposes in each of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Of all of the book of Daniel, which is so greatly loved, Daniel 9, the passage that I read, is perhaps the least appreciated and the under, most underestimated. We've studied an awful lot and known an awful lot about God through this passage, but there is nowhere that we find more about Daniel's love for and, and knowledge of God than in this passage. He uses names of the Lord that he uses in no other part of the, of the book that he writes. He describes attributes of God that he doesn't describe in any other place. And so all of the book of Daniel that is given so that we might know our God and follow Him, all of the book can be summed up and summarized in these words that we've read. It comes down to Daniel's study and understanding of who God is. You say, Jeff, how do I know God? How do I know who He is? You've talked about knowing God. How is it that I know Him? Do I go set myself up on a mountain and sit under a tree and meditate? Is that how I know God? says, Daniel, in that first year of the reign of Darius, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord 
through Jeremiah the prophet. There is a statement right there of the power of the Word of God when he says this wasn't just the ideas of Jeremiah who wrote. This is the Word of the Lord. And the word that he describes here, Lord, all capitals, you find them in your King James or New King James Bible, that is translating the word Jehovah. The name Jehovah, the covenant name of God, is not used anywhere else in the book of Daniel except for in this chapter where it's used seven different times. And here he says, it is the word of a relationship Covenant-keeping God. It is the Word of God that God has given to us through Jeremiah that we might know Him. Folks, God desires that we might know Him. And He has revealed Himself to us through His Word. Daniel only had excerpts of the Scriptures. We have them all placed together and in our hands, and yet they gather dust on our shelves throughout the week because we do not study to know God. We don't go to the extent that Daniel did, that he desired to know God and desired to know what God was doing. When Daniel came to this study, when he came with this reverence for the Word of God, he certainly had all the background that I described of understanding and knowing what God had said through Solomon during that prayer. He would have certainly understood all the law of Moses because he refers to the law of Moses later on. He says the oaths and the covenants, the promises of God to Moses, he understood those. But he specifically comes to a prophecy that had been given about 70 years ahead of time. A prophecy by uh, by a prophet, really a man who is just, just a little older than Daniel. Jeremiah was prophesying in the days when Daniel was a child and Daniel was able to go back and remember the words that were spoken and he was able to read the words that had been written to him, to him and his friends in captivity. I want to look at the scriptures. I want to look at the holy word of God to see what God had said and to come with the same reverence to understand so that we might understand what Daniel had that anticipated or that precipitated the prayer that he makes to God. Would you turn with me first to Moses? Would you turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Leviticus? The first five books of the Bible is known as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. You would find these promises and these principles in other parts of the Pentateuch. But Leviticus 26 makes it very clear, very plain. Leviticus 26 would have been something that Daniel memorized as a child. He would have known these words very well. As a matter of fact, all of Israel would have known these words, and yet some few of them actually took heed to them. I'm going to begin with verse 1 and read certain portions of this entire chapter. He says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. And then here's what he says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now listen to the promise. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season and the land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Verse 5, he says, you will dwell in the land safely. Verse 6, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. Verse 9, I will look upon you favorably and make you fruitful. I will multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. All of this is the promise of blessing if you obey. But look at verse 14. But if you do not obey me, do not observe all of these commandments. And if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgment so that all you do, uh, so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you 
wasting disease and fever. Later he says, I will cause sorrow of heart. Your enemies shall eat your food, it says. Verse 17, I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Verse 18, he says, After all this, if you still will not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins and I will break the pride of your power. Verse 20 says, Your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the field yield their fruit. Verse 21, Then if you still walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring upon you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send beasts among you. Verse 23, If by these things you are still not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I will punish you till seven times of your sins. I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. I will send pestilence, he says. You should be delivered into the hand of your enemy. Verse 27, he continues, And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And this literally happened. As they were being held captive and as Jerusalem was being besieged, they had no food. And the people were looking to eat the flesh of their own children. That is how desperate they had become. God continues to judge them. He says, I'm going to send you into captivity. And then in verse 40, He says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to Me and that they also have walked contrary to Me and that I may also have have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember My covenant with Jacob and I will remember the land. And later he says, I am the Lord your God. Folks, here is what Daniel's remembering. He's remembering the covenant of God where God says, Look, here's my covenant with you. The covenant is easy. I will keep my promises. If you sin, I will bring judgment and chastisement and I will correct you. If you obey and follow me, then I will bless you more than you could ever hope for. And yet they continually chose the way of rebellion. They chose the way of rebellion to the point where Jeremiah, the prophet, years later, would recognize all of what God had warned through Moses. And Jeremiah would express these words that we're anticipating specifically. Not just the general idea of judgment, but now the specific time even of the judgment or of the chastisement that they're under. If you would turn with me again to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25 and then we'll look at another passage in Jeremiah as well because, folks, the Word of God sets the table for Daniel's heart of humility and his prayer. The Word of God is what revealed to Daniel who God was and what God desired. Daniel set himself to study and for an insight. And from that insight, that insight came from the Word of God itself. If you're in Isaiah, then you find Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25. Verses 9 through 12. These are the words of Jeremiah the prophet. Let me go back and, and set the stage just a little. Jeremiah prophesied in a time when no one would listen to him. As a matter of fact, some of what he came and brought to the king by way of, a, uh, by way of warning, by way of heartfelt compassion, the king threw him into jail, took the scroll that he had written and burned it because he did not want to hear what God had said. Here's what Jeremiah says in verse 3. Of chapter 25 from the 13th year of Josiah the son of Ammon king of Judah even to this day this is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me 
I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. The Lord has sent to you all of His servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to them. You know, some of us get so frustrated when we pray for and share with relatives for a whole year. I prayed for them for a whole year. I've given up on them. I've had it. Could you imagine this ministry? 23 years He is their pastor. 23 years He is the prophet of God who speaks to them and they will not listen to what He says. And so He said... Repent now, everyone, of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given you and your father forever and ever. In other words, be blessed, but do not go after the gods to serve them and worship them and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hand and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord. Notice again, it's not that you haven't listened to Jeremiah or any of the prophets, it's that you haven't listened to God. You haven't listened to the Lord who loves you and drew you to himself. That you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. And what is that hurt going to be? Verse 9. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I'll bring him against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around. And will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the, and the light of the lamp. And the whole land shall be a desolation and, and an astonishment and the nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now God's getting specific. He said, my covenant was, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey, then there will be chastisement. Now, I have given you warning upon warning. I've given you chance upon chance. And now it's coming to the time. The judgment is near. Seventy years, you're being delivered into captivity. Seventy years, you will serve them. And yet, even when God brings judgment, that's not the end. Because our God deals severely with sin and yet there is forgiveness, there is restoration, there is patience with our God. And in Jeremiah 29, please turn there. Jeremiah 29 beginning with verse 10, God promises that He would deliver. Here's what He says. For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 29.10, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you. I will bring you back, God promises, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. Folks, this was the message, the very passage of Scripture that Daniel read so that he might know who God is and so that he might respond to God in an appropriate way. Daniel is getting an accurate view of God so that he can have an accurate view of himself and of his people and so that he can pray. He can pray a prayer that is not just the desire of his heart. He is praying a prayer of intercession that comes from the very words of the Lord. Have you heard how many of the words that we've read from Leviticus, from Chronicles, from Jeremiah, the words that we have read are the words that Daniel uses in his prayer. And out of his insight, through studying the Word of God, he's able to come up with this intercession. An intercession which has to be one of the most descriptive and beautiful 
and God-honoring, glorifying prayers of, of all time, including here in the, in the Bible. So then I said, having understood all of these things, and by the way, where is he? Daniel had been taken captive by the people that he'd been prophesied about, Nebuchadnezzar. He realizes that in 70 years that they go into captivity, and guess what? 70 years are drawing very close. Daniel is no longer the 15 or so year old young man that had gone into captivity. Now he is over 80 years old. And being almost 85 years old, he's able to look and say, look, 70 years are here. It's almost time for us to be delivered. And if it's time for us to be delivered, then God, we need to repent. We need to call upon you. We need to turn. And based on God's truth, he says, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Verse 3 provides for us a description of desperation. Here is someone who comes in his prayer in desperation. He sets his face. That means he turns, just as they said, turn and face the city as you're turning your face and your heart toward that city. He said, not only set your face, but he says, make, I'm making my request. I'm praying. I'm bringing supplication. And as he brings these requests, he's coming with a humility. He's coming with an earnestness. Now look, prayer is not always an expression of humility, is it? There have been some who stood before God in prayer, like a Pharisee who stood before God and he said, God, as he pats himself on the back, kind of piously folds his hands up by his chest, raises his head so that everyone can see how zealous and earnest he is. He stands and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this publican that's over here. You hear that prayer? It's the prayer of self-righteousness, the prayer of arrogance. And God resists the proud that He gives grace to the humble and God hears the prayer of that publican who wouldn't even look up toward heaven because he was so humble, recognizing God is so great. And he simply beat upon his chest as he bowed himself and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here is Daniel coming with a prayer that is not a prayer of self-righteousness. It is not a prayer of judgment where he looks upon everyone else with disgust and says, Look, I've served God for 70 years. God has used me to make a difference in, in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's life. And I have been faithful to him. He delivered me from, the fiery, uh, from my friends from the fiery furnace and me from the lion's den. Why don't the people of Israel get right? Oh no, this is a prayer of humility. It's a prayer of sorrow. A prayer of, a prayer of grief. How do we know that? Because he says that I fasted. Fasting, folks, was not something that Daniel had to go to a conference to learn how to do. Fasting is something that he did because he was so burdened about the needs of Israel and the people of Israel. He didn't have to go and learn how to fast in a healthy way. He was so hungry and so desiring in the blessing of God that nothing else mattered to him. Have you ever been that hungry for something? Some of us have worked so diligently on homework that we skipped the meal because we were getting ready for finals. Fasting for a test. Some of us have worked so hard at work that we worked right through lunch. Fasting for achievement. Some of us have become so engrossed in our hobbies or in whatever it was that we were doing that we skipped the meal because we were so engrossed and our mind was so focused. That's fasting for a hobby. And yet when's the last time that we hungered for God in that way? When's the last time that we were so focused upon the Lord and the needs of people around us and our own desire for fellowship with Him that fasting just became the natural response of a humble heart that was hungry for God? Not only did he fast, but he says that he dressed himself with sackcloth. He took off the fancy clothes of the palace and he put on the clothes of a pauper. 
Oh, to the churches in Revelation, God says that there is a church and I look upon you and behold, you think that you are rich and fed and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are poor and naked and miserable and blind. Here's Daniel, who's not like an arrogant one saying, hey, I have everything that I need. He comes in humility before God saying, God, I am naked before you. I'm naked here before these people. I am poor and I am needy. And God, unless you do something, nothing's going to happen. He didn't put on his prince outfit and go politically maneuver and figure out, hey, 70 years are almost finished. It's time for us to be delivered. I need to set up a meeting with Darius. That's not how he handled it. He put on the poor clothing before God, acknowledging who he was. And in mourning and in sorrow and poverty, he comes before God. You ever heard this one? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. He comes with poverty of spirit. He comes with fasting and a hunger for God. He comes with ashes. The ashes are the opposite of what we do. Half of us anyway. Half of us put on makeup before we go out the door, right? We want to do everything we can to make our face a little bit more shiny or a little bit more attractive, have a little bit more color. Hey, look, he says, I need to get rid of the color. I need to go ashen. I need to make my face look like my heart is. This is an expression of grief and mourning as he says, look, when I come before God, I have nothing to show. I'm not coming to impress Him. He sees me as I already am. I'm going to show God in this ashen way that what I see on the outward is what He sees on the inside, that there is need for grief and sorrow and mourning. Here's a description of desperation that continues in verse 5 when he says, we've sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've done wickedly even by departing from your precepts and your judgment, here is a description of desperation, but it's also, we find, a description of, de- of the deliverer. The description of the deliverer is found in verse 4 when he prays and he says, I prayed to the Lord my God. I made confession and said, Oh Lord God, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. Here is Daniel, a man who knows God. Because he knows God, he can pray. He knows the names of God. He knows that He is the Lord Adonai. And when He talks about the Lord in verse 2, or or in in other parts of this verse, He describes Him as the Lord God. Verse 3 describes that. The Lord. You see, capital L, then lowercase O-R-D. That's Adonai, the Master, the King. He says, you are the King, and I recognize who you are, the rightful boss. He says, you are God, Elohim. Not only are you God, but you're the only living God. He described Him in other parts of Daniel. And now he says, I come before the Lord Jehovah, the one who had entered into covenant and relationship with the people of Israel. And he's going to keep that covenant. He knew him not only by his names, but he knew God by his attributes. Lord God, you are the great and awesome God. To describe God as being great is recognizing that he is infinite and unlimited. The psalmist described the greatness of God when it says that he is infinite, he is unlimited in his knowledge. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, you know my rising up, you understand my thoughts afar off, you comprehend my path and my lying down. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. He understood that God is great and that He is infinite and unlimited in His knowledge, but He is also infinite and unlimited in His presence. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, You are there. The darkness can't even hide me from You. 
He's infinite and unlimited in His knowledge and in His presence, but also in His power. For you formed me. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. Folks, God is great. Now listen. Great is not only describing Him as being infinite and unlimited beyond what we can ever imagine, but great is a comparative term, isn't it? When you talk about a great football team, you have to compare them to some other football team, right? If you're talking about a great guy, that means that he's a great guy compared to other guys. Our God is great. Isaiah 40 says, what shall we compare to Him? What is it that you can compare to God and His greatness? He says, behold, look at the oceans. Something we consider to be pretty magnificent and great and huge. The oceans are huge and yet He says, to God, if you ask Him how big are the oceans, He holds out His palm and He says, oh, they're about this big. He says, if you want to compare God to the, to the mountains and the dust, He says, look at the mountains that we consider to be pretty magnificent. Pikes Peak, we really like that. But there are mountains that are twice as big as Pikes Peak that are out there. We look at them and we are filled with awe because they are so huge, we can't even move them. God, how big are these? He says, oh, I weigh them in a scale. We look at the universe around us as being so great, millions of light years in distance. We think of how great that is. To God, how, how big are those? He says, oh, about the measure of a span, about this big. In every single case, the greatness of God is seen. When you compare Him to the mountains, He is far greater. To the oceans, He is far greater. To the universe, He is far greater. We compare Him to people. Our great people, kings and princes, and yet he says the kings of the earth and the man is, are found as grasshoppers and less than nothing. It is no wonder that when, when Daniel describes the greatness of God, he says, God, you are great and awesome. Awesome wasn't the gnarly language of the day, dude. Awesome was saying that because you are so great and powerful, I fear and tremble in reverence before you. Getting an accurate view of God gave him an accurate view of himself. You're the one who holds the waters as, a, as in your palm of your hand. What's that making me? Less than a grasshopper. Less than the dust of the earth. It makes me nothing and you, God, are worth trembling before. This is a powerful deliverer. He's also a loyal deliverer. The loyalty is described when he says, God, great and awesome. He says, you are the God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. When he describes his covenant there, he keeps his promises. The promise such as Leviticus 26 that I had just said. God keeps his promises. But God keeps his promises. When God promises that I will bless you if you obey, and when God promises that He will judge you or ch chasten you if you disobey, God keeps His promises. But not only does He keep His covenant, He also says that He keeps His mercy. You see the word mercy there? It's really the word hesed. Hesed is a Hebrew word that describes the loving loyalty of God. He says that, God, you keep your loyalty. Your loving kindness is translated other places. He says that in this relationship with you, you, you're faithful. You're loyal. You're like a husband who promised himself faithful and true and loyal and you keep that promise no matter what your wife may do. That's our God. He is powerful. He is loyal. 
and His loyalty is extended on this condition. If we love Him and obey Him, and as Daniel hears that, he realizes we've loved ourselves, and we've obeyed our own heart and our own longing, and we've gone away from Him. This God, this Deliverer is powerful, He is loyal, He is also righteous in verse 7. Verse 7 and verse 14 describe Him with these words, O Lord, righteousness belongs to You. Verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord has kept this disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which He does. You don't have Daniel coming with an angry attitude that says, God, what are you putting us through? We're your people. Why are you allowing us to do this? He's saying, God, everything you do is right. When you bring blessing because we obey, that's right. And you're righteous in doing that. When you bring chastisement upon us because we disobey, God, you are right. And everything you do is right. No one can say that God is unjust. No one could say that God is unrighteous because He is righteous in all of His ways. Daniel doesn't come with excuses. He doesn't come with finger pointing. There is no finger pointing with God. He is righteous in all of His ways and everything He does is right. Furthermore, I'm grateful for this because a powerful, loyal, righteous God that was not not forgiving, that would be terrible. And yet this is one that is forgiving, it says in verse 9. In verse verse 9 of this chapter, Daniel continues to recognize to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness that we have rebelled against Him. To Him belongs this mercy where He does not give us what we deserve. He gives us forgiveness and grace where He doesn't give us what we do deserve. Here is a God who is forgiving and He restores us. And as a result, this accurate view of God allowed Him to have an accurate view of Himself. Where? It was not only a description of the desperation, a description of the deliverer, but now there is a recognition of the depravity. The recognition of the depravity is where He says, I am taken responsible for my actions and the actions of my people. We have sinned. Listen to the words that He used. We have sinned five times, he uses that. We have committed iniquity three different times. We've done wickedly twice, he says it. We have rebelled against you at least once. We've departed from your precepts and judgments at least twice. He talks about departing. He says we have been unfaithful at least twice. We have not obeyed three times. We've transgressed your law at least once. You hear every single time is a description of the depravity of their actions, where they are. He's not saying, hey, we're pretty good. We just mess up every once in a while. Is that what he says? God, I messed up, but hey, you know my heart and what I really wanted to do was... No, no, he doesn't come justifying. He comes as a poverty-stricken beggar. He comes as a poor man. He comes in sorrow and grief. And he says, God, this is what you see when you see me. Someone who has sinned, the word sin means to miss the mark. To fall far short of what God has done. To miss the mark would be something we do when we, when we uh, take aim. You say, wait a second, I, I think I'm really generally pretty good. There are a lot of people in this world that think that they're pretty good. But what they're doing is they're comparing themselves to someone else. They're saying, hey, compared to so-and-so, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not sinful like Hitler. Why do we always compare ourselves to Hitler? I mean, why don't we start comparing ourselves to someone who we don't measure up so well against? But, hey, compared to Charles Manson, I'm okay. Thank God for the Charles Mansons and the Hitlers out there. Otherwise, we'd all be in real trouble, right? So we compare ourselves with them. But when he says, you have sinned, you have missed the mark, he's saying, the mark isn't Charles Manson. And the mark isn't Hitler. The mark is Jesus Christ. The mark is perfection. 
I'm a basketball player. Has there ever been a basketball player who can claim perfection? Even the best shooters on their best day are lucky to hit 50% of their shots in a game. You know what? They've missed the mark. No matter how good they are, they've missed the mark. They haven't measured up. And that's what God says. We have sinned. We've missed the mark against you. We've committed iniquity or we have transgressed your law. That means it says, here's what God says and we didn't do it. What kind of examples? How about the Ten Commandments as an example? The Ten Commandments, which we rarely know. We certainly don't put them up. We, why? Because they're too condemning to us. Read the Ten Commandments when it says, You shall have no other God before me. And then they start worshipping all the other gods. All the things that we look to for satisfaction. The things that we look to for real joy and real contentment and real happiness in life. Let me ask you a question. What is it that you are looking to in your life for real satisfaction? If I only had this red car, sports car, then I'd be satisfied. That just became your God. If I only had a house with, with, uh, on the golf course, then I'd be satisfied. That just became your God. If I only had a girlfriend or a boyfriend, it just became your God. As soon as we start looking for satisfaction and contentment and real happiness in life to something other than God, then that just took the place of God. And we're guilty of idolatry. We've transgressed. We've gone iniquity. We have committed iniquity against His law. That's just the first one. He says, you should not make any graven images. Well, phew, thank goodness we don't have a whole lot of statues around here. And yet, statues and idolatrous images continue to be all the rave in the world around us. So we can skip over that one. Uh, you shall keep the Sabbath day to honor it and keep it holy. People of Israel did not obey the Sabbath, as a matter of fact, God says the reason I'm going to judge you for 70 years is because 70 Sabbath periods have gone and you have forgotten all of them and I'm going to take my rest. I'm going to receive the honor that I am worthy of. Now listen, I don't believe that the Sabbath continues on into the church age. I don't believe that we could be legalistic in saying, hey, you can't walk, you know, you can't go to restaurants, you can't do... But I do believe that this principle applies. God will receive the honor that He is worthy of. We call it the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day means that He owns it. It means that He purchased it with His own blood. And he, we commemorate it on the Lord's Day because that's when He rose again from the dead. But folks, listen, He will receive His honor. And when we start taking casual attitudes about, oh, well, hey, I've got to have my rest, relaxation. I've got to have my time. Wait a second. This isn't about you. It's about God. It's about honoring Him. And He says, you go and work and do all that you want, but one day of the week. You know, we, say, we, we said a prayer earlier today that says, God, You are worthy of all of our time, all of our energy. Listen, God knows that we have to plant and, and raise up food and feed our families and work. He says, six days, work yourself to death. In those six days, it's going to be challenging for you to have time to read and to pray and to set your heart aright. It's going to be challenging in those six days because so much is going on in your life. You're saying, Jeff, are you telling me that it's okay to be busy? Hey, I'm telling you, it's okay to be busy. Understand, it's busy. But one day, at least one day is set aside for you to refocus your priorities, to realign your worship to God and to reverence and honor Him. We've committed iniquities. We've transgressed His law. 
We become selfish, even in that day that is His. I could go on. You shall not murder. You know what they did? They were killing each other for pieces of property. They, he says, you shall honor the, your mother and your father. He says, you have set life by father and mother. You're not honoring moms and dads. We do the same thing. He says, you have stolen and we go around stealing from each other constantly. He says, you shall not commit adultery. And then he says, you are committing lewdness beyond imagination with all the different things that you commit. Some of you say, well, whew, at least I've never committed adultery. And then Jesus comes along and says, you have heard you should not commit adultery. I'll say unto you, anyone who's looked upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And we all blub, blub, blub right down to the bottom as we sink and realize we have missed the mark. We have committed transgression. It is not Eve, oh Lord, that's in the need of prayer. It's me. It's not my brother, not my sister. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We come to a place where it's not the abortionist. It is me, oh Lord, that's in the need of prayer. Come on now. Isn't that right? It is not those homosexuals. We like to point at them. What do they do? Wait a second. It's me that has sinned against God and missed the mark. As a result, he not only recognizes his depravity, but then he requests deliverance. The request for deliverance is in verses 16 through 19 where he comes after recognizing who God is, after acknowledging who He is and the judgment that they've been under. Now he comes and he says, Therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication for your sake. Not for my sake. It's not about me. This is about God. After all, the city is named after you and is sitting in desolation. What are all the world, what's all the nations going to think when they see your city sitting in desolation? What is all the world going to think when they see the people who bear your name sitting in desolation and trouble and and afflicted? What are they going to think for your name's sake, God? Hear us and forgive us and and restore us so that the world might get again, so that they might get an accurate picture of you. I don't want to misrepresent you. For your name's sake, God, deliver us. Furthermore, he says, we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Aren't you glad that when we come to the Lord, we don't have to say, Lord, hear me, because I'm trying real hard. I'm doing my best. No. We come and say, God, you know where I fall. You you know all about me. I acknowledge my sin and my weakness, my transgression, but you are great and powerful. You are loyal and hearing. You are forgiving. And God, I'm coming on the basis of your mercy and your mercy alone. You know what made David a man after God's own heart? Was it because he was perfect and pure in all of his ways? He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. He was a selfish man in so many ways. And yet, when he was confronted with his sin, what did he do? Did he blame it on Bathsheba? Did he blame it on Uriah? Did he blame it on everyone else? No. He says, God, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He's not coming and beating himself up, whipping himself, smashing himself down, saying, God, hear me because, look, I'm beating myself up enough that you will hear me. It's not about penance. It's about a penitence that comes and says, God, I'm sinful and wicked and I can't do anything to earn your forgiveness. You, you just be merciful and gracious. That's what salvation is about. That's the the difference between salvation and religion. Religion is man's effort to appease God. Never works. 
Salvation and deliverance is when we come to Him and the Bible says that He is mighty to save and He will save. He will heal. He will hear. He will forgive. He will restore. Do you hear this prayer of a beautiful man? It's a prayer that was given 2,500 years ago. What relevance does it have for us today? Because our God is the same. And our same God who has the same view of sin, His principles remain the same. And if we desire to be in right communion and fellowship with Him, folks, look, some of us are going to be looking at the 70 weeks next, next week or in a couple of weeks. We're going to be looking at it. We're going to be saying, hey, look, the end times are coming. What should that do? The end times should drive us to the Word of God where we can find the insight and know God and then insight and God should drive us to intercession, praying for ourselves and confessing our sin, adoring God for who He is. Come on now. Some of us are so focused on ourselves. Everything about our life is focused on ourselves. God says, I am God. Get an accurate view of me and you'll get an accurate view of yourself. Daniel, this whole Babylonian thing, it's not about you, Daniel. It's not just about you. It's about what God is doing in the people around you. My unemployment, my illness, my struggles, my challenges... My dented fender, those things are not necessarily only about me. Stop being so selfish. Let's recognize God is great. And let's start bowing ourselves before Him. My people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. America needs that kind of touch. This isn't a promise that is made to Americans. This is a promise that is made to God's people everywhere. And we are God's people. And as God's people, we need to humble ourselves and pray and seek His face. Amen? Amen. And turn from our wicked ways. Amen? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, no one is looking around. In just a moment, we're going to spend some time worshiping this great God that we have recognized today. We're going to sing some more choruses that acknowledge Him for who He is. But before we enter into this time of worship and communion, fellowship with the Lord, I'm going to ask us to do some examination that says, Alright, Lord, have I been proud? Have I been self-sufficient? Have I been looking to the wrong kind of things for satisfaction? Is there a different God in my life? God, has, has this kind of sin and pride and arrogance crept into my life? If so, I need to turn from those wicked ways. Is there anyone who's a pastor as you spoke this morning? The Lord is working in my heart, dealing with me about some specific sins and some things that I need to come to God and confess and ask for His forgiveness and ask for seek His restoration. Pastor, would you pray for me? Is there anyone who holds your hand up just for a second and say, Lord, uh, Pastor, I'm praying to the Lord. He knows my heart, but the Lord's dealing with me in some areas. I see several places. Any, any, uh, anyone else? You can put those down. More important than raising your hand before me is opening your heart before the Lord. Would you open up your heart before the Lord? Confess that sin. Acknowledge God in His greatness and say, God, help me to see you for who you really are so that I might get a real view of myself and so that I might be able to turn from the wicked ways that I've gone. And then, God, I ask that you would forgive and restore and bring a healing in, in my life, in my family, in my church, and beyond that to wherever you are working. Lord, once again, we confess that a passage such as what we've read this morning really We can't do justice to it in the words that we've said. It is sufficient of itself. It speaks for itself. 
Daniel knew you. He knew you, Lord, not because of his great visions. He knew you because, because he went to your word and he studied and he read about you and he meditated upon your truth. He communed with you and as a result of studying and going to the word of God, he was able to know your name, know your character. Having an accurate view of, of you, he was able to get an accurate view of himself and his need. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold the truth. Let us have an accurate view of you and your greatness and power and holiness and righteousness, loyalty and love, forgiveness and mercy. Seeing you for who you are, may we worship you and glorify you in a way that is fitting and pleasing to you. Further, may one of those acts of worship be a confession and a humility of brokenness that says, Lord, I am sinful, but I need your cleansing. I have no merit of my own, and yet I come only on the merit of Christ and what He has done for me. Lord, be merciful and gracious. Change me. Mold me into all You want me to be. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with me, please, as we worship this great God and respond to Him?